This Wellness Coach Podcast is brought to you by the Wellness... Reto, for crying out loud, don't tell them all of our secrets. There's a very special announcement coming up, folks. Go to the Facebook page, go to Instagram at the Wellness Couch, or better yet, go to thewellnesscouch.com, enter your email address to sign up for the very special announcement which is coming. Ah, you're killing me, Marcus. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. There he stands, resplendent in his uniform, shiny black boots, insignia on his chest swastika armband on his sleeve, and in his hand, a pencil. Unusual, this pencil, for with one flick to either left or right, it has the power to give you life or death. In front of him, a line of naked women, all shapes and sizes. This is my second time confronting the pencil. First time was not lucky. But the pencil beckons the group back into the line. My body is skinny, undeveloped, but clean. I do not know why or how. The will to live forces me to utter three words. Lassen Sie mich. This time, the pencil slowly leans towards life. I grab my pile of clothes, hugging them, run out into the snowy outdoors. My pent-up emotions burst forth. Hysterically crying, start to put on my clothes. I'm only 13 and have gotten a reprieve from death from Dr. Mengele, the butcher of Auschwitz. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. My name is Marcus Pierce, and it gives me great pleasure, as always, to bring on the fabulous co-founder of The Wellness Couch and The Wellness Guys. He is the great Dr. Damien Christoph. Hello, Damo. Oh, g'day, Marcus. What an exciting opportunity for us today. I'm just, uh, I'm a little bit, I'm in awe. I'm not too sure how I'm going to go today. This is a very moving interview. Yeah, absolutely. This is always one of the more humbling and and uh, one of the more humbling times on 100 Not Out, where we have the great opportunity to interview um, a Holocaust survivor. We've interviewed Eddie Jaku um, a couple of times on 100 Not Out, and we've brought up the Holocaust a number of times on this podcast, really just to bring it to our listeners the importance of not not just aging well, but the quality of life. And so, our interview today is surely going to um, go down in our minds as one of the one of the greatest interviews views on 100 Not Out. Our very Absolutely. special guest today is Selena Binia. Selena was born in Krakow in Poland, May 28, 1931. Selena is one of the last living survivors of Schindler's List. This is a list of 1,098 Jewish men, women, and children who more than 72 years ago were saved from the Nazis and the Holocaust, largely due to the humanity of Oskar Schindler. Now, Oskar Schindler was a German business, businessman with a heart of gold who spent his entire fortune, we're talking millions and millions of dollars, on bribes to key members of the German army in exchange for allowing him to employ Jews 
in his enamelware and ammunition factory. In Selena's own words, Oscar Schindler saved her life, and it was Steven Spielberg who directed the eight-time Oscar award-winning movie Schindler's List who gave Selena a voice. Today, Selena Biniaz lives in California, married to her husband, Amir, and she has two children, four grandchildren, and Selena truly has had the courage to use her voice for the greater good and to share her story thousands of times around the globe, and she's been good enough to join us on the podcast today. Selena, it's a very warm 100 not out welcome to you from us here in Australia. Thank you so much. I'm glad to do it. Selena, it's an amazing, uh, amazing thing to have you on our podcast. And as Marcus mentioned before, we have spoken to other Holocaust survivors. Um, and, and it's always a, a fascinating uh, interview and to hear stories of resilience and to see what you're actually doing in the world now, given that you survived such a uh, horrendous time. Um, I know that you do speak to many school children and uh, they range in all kinds of ages, you know, from very young to a little bit older. For an event that would seem like eons ago to them, what response do you get from the kids when you tell them um, of your story? Uh, what I try to tell them is that uh, I'm pushing forward the idea that you have to get rid of any kind of a hatred because hatred is corrosive. And a lot of them uh, not only respond to my background of what I went through, but they're impressed that I was able to work my way through it and uh, continue to have a decent life. And even though they may have issues at home, some of them, uh, the idea is to work through those issues to be able to move forward in your life. My reception usually is very uh, good. Uh, the kids are very interested. They ask interesting questions. Uh, a lot of them have been studying uh, in the classes the whole idea of the Holocaust. It is sort of required here in the United States in eighth grade to be taught about uh, the Holocaust. Some of them are being taken to various uh museums of Holocaust, like the one here in California and one in Washington, D.C. So they're exposed to some of the uh, graphic uh, arts and, you know, the, the reminders, etc. And some of them ask questions about, you know, was I hungry? What did I do? How did I work? Uh, did I have any education? to which I have to respond with sort of a positive and negative way. So that's the answer to the question. Selena, I think this is remarkable that, um, like you said, there are a number of challenges that you experience. And I want to provide some context to the listeners about, around your story. And I'm sure you've considered um, how your you, the way that you survived really is quite remarkable. Just to give some context, you are, um, from my understanding, one of the youngest. You were uh, a young girl. You were, um, let's see, you were born in 1931. So you were nine or ten um, during the war. I think you were 14. Uh, maybe a deliberation, but we'll, I think that's key here for people to remember that you were um, employed in a factory by a man by the name of Julius Madrich, and he employed around 800 Jews. 
And when the, the SS closed down his factories, Schindler then agreed, Oscar Schindler agreed to add about 60 of those 800 to his factory, your name being one of them and your parents being another two of them. So out of 800, you were fortunate enough, you and your, and your parents fortunate enough to be three of them. And then from my understanding, in Plashov, which was the concentration camp, um, you know, in um, – in, in Krakow, you developed scarlet fever, and in your own words, it was very dangerous to be sick at this time. So you're in the hospital with scarlet fever. It then develops into typhoid because there were no sanitary, you know, conditions. Um, and again, it's dangerous to be sick, so you would have been very, uh, you know, very volatile at the time. The typhoid then leaves you with jaundice, which develops into a liver impairment, all at, at a very young age. And then when you eventually, and I highly recommend people that haven't watched Schindler's List to watch it to really add the, I suppose, the detail to this story. But then you end up in Brinlitz at the Schindler factory uh, towards the end of the war. You have an enlarged liver um, and then you're in the infirmary at the factory and it's really thanks to Emily Schindler, Oscar's wife, who's bringing you in food each day to sustain you um, that really in many ways keeps you alive. I mean, you must be a cat. I mean, you've had more than nine lives. It's an incredible tale of survival. Well, if anything, I'm purring right now. <laughs> yes, Emily, Emily Schindler was uh, really a remarkable person. She was not really given enough credit in the movie uh, because uh, uh, in the last camp at the factory in Brunitz, it was she who went out on the outside to forage for food for us. She would gather things from the farm, such as rutabaga and winter vegetables, to make it into a kind of a watery soup. But for me, in the infirmary, she would come in every morning at about 10 o'clock with a pot of farina, which is kind of a cream of wheat, that she had cooked herself, and she would fill our little bowls with it, and that extra little bit of nourishment made a huge difference to me, you know, uh, it it really helped me survive because at that point I was way, you know, I was as tall as I am now, which is about five foot five, but I only weighed 35 kilos. So you can well imagine that uh, I was kind of emaciated. Mm. So that little bit of nourishment really helped me. Oh, she sounds deal. like an angel. Like she, she is uh, your guardian she angel. Was very nice. Mm. I had a chance in 1997 to, uh, I went with my daughter to one of her meetings in Buenos Aires, and when I was there, uh, the gentleman who was in charge of one of the groups going to the various estancias, he was the head of the Monsanto uh, company, when he found out that I was one of the Schindler people, he arranged, he said, Mrs. Schindler was still living there on the outside of Buenos Aires in a town called San Vicente. And he arranged for myself and my daughter and an interpreter to go out and meet Mrs. Schindler. So that gave wow. me another opportunity to say thank you to her for being who she was, you know, and for truly saving our lives. It's an incredible amount of How compassion that she showed, wasn't it? Like it's uh, it's an amazing thing that uh, she was able to do that. 
and her husband, of course. But uh, and and for you to experience that degree of compassion, did you find that uh, as a result of receiving that compassion at such a young age, that compassion seemed to flow through you and the things that you did then? Do, you know, did you find, Selena, that you were potentially or particularly more compassionate than some of your other friends or, or colleagues that may not have experienced what you experienced? Well, uh, I think what happened, you know. I was eight years old when the war broke out, and uh, I had just finished my second grade in school. And then all the schools were closed right away as soon as the Germans came in. And they were reopened later on, but only for non-Jews. The Jews were not allowed to go to school. So I didn't go to school for about six years. By the time uh, the war was over, I could read, but I had never had a pencil in my hand. In terms of compassion, we spent two years in Germany, and that was one of the luckiest things that my parents decided. Instead of going to a displaced person's camp, uh, they opted on living in a small German town on ration cards and on UNRWA packages. The UNRWA packages provided us with such wonderful items to be bartered for my lessons, such as cocoa and chocolate and soap and cigarettes, you know, some things that the Germans haven't had uh, during the war or even after the war. But in this particular town was a cloister, semi-cloister with nuns, and my parents were able to arrange for me to have lessons in German and English at that cloister by a retired nun. She was 90 years old, and I was only 14. The point of it was that she had never, she came into the convent when she was 16 years old. Uh, I, I gather it was a broken love affair or something like that. And she never left. And being semi cloistered, she had never left left the convent. So she had no idea of Hitler or uh, the hatred against Jews or anything like that. She was an extremely positive person. And it was her way with me, teaching me, that helped me work through anger. She was the one who taught me that hatred was corrosive, that you had to work through all of this anger and hatred in order to move forward. My being with her uh, for first for two years in Germany and then continuing for two more years through letters uh, after I went to the United States, she was really a savior. She was my salvation by accepting me just for who I was, a human being who needed help, not a piece of vermin or anything like that, you know. So I think by being uh, given these positive things by other people, and also my parents who are very, very resilient and very forward-looking. My mother used to always say that the world doesn't owe you anything. You take, you are here, you've survived, you do the best you can from that point of view. Even though she lost the entire family, my father lost all his sisters. So, you know, they were just remarkable people in a sense that they also were very forward-looking, and that helped me too. 
I'd love to ask you, Selena. There's so many questions that, that come from from your answer, but from what I understand, during that time when you were being tutored um, uh, by the beautiful nun, you're also living in a house with a widow of a Nazi. Is that is that correct? And and if so, was that uh, another test of compassion? Because I'm sure on on the, well on face value, that seems like a rather awkward living arrangement. Well, we were billeted into her. Uh, apartment, which was on on the top floor of a bank. She was the concierge for the bank. Her husband was a Nazi and was killed during the war. So the compassion part of it was that here she was. She didn't do anything, you know, and yet she had lost her husband. She uh, was forced to take in uh, people, renters, you know, she had to share her home. Uh, it sort of brought the, by living in a German town, truly, it made me realize, it made my parents realize also that not all Germans were ogres, you know, that there was decent life out there, just that we didn't know about it. I'd, I'd like to ask you, um, and it feels it feels difficult to ask you, but I think for for people listening who often we talk about on this podcast a lot, you know, the first world problems of the world. I just want to share with people. I mentioned earlier your many escapes from death, and one I didn't mention was what happened when you found yourself in Auschwitz. Just to give some context, um, Schindler had had um, made an arrangement with the SS to move uh, the Schindler Jews out to Brinlitz. Uh, the war was coming to an end. Uh, the 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 factory had been built in Brinlitz. All of the Jews were about to be moved. And from what I understand and from what we see in the movie, the men get taken out to Brinlitz, but the women get taken to Auschwitz. And I think you're 13 at the time. I think all the women expect that they're going to Brinlitz. You end up in Auschwitz. Would you be happy to take it up from there in terms of the experience that you went through um, and what you learned from it? Surely. Uh, well, what really happened is that uh, there was the concentration camp was going to be liquidated because the Russians were already in parts of Poland and were moving very quickly towards the West. So uh, that's when Schindler got the permission by bribing the commandant with a lot of money to take his people to Brinlitz to the munitions factory which was going to be a munitions factory because, and he was allowed to do that because it was a war effort. So at the about end of September, the 800 men were put in boxcars and left. And of course, we didn't know whether they made it or not because there was no way of contacting anybody. Two weeks later, we women, 300 women, were put into boxcars. And a day and a half, we were riding on a train, and it was night, and we were surely, and the train stopped, and we were surely thought that we had arrived in Czechoslovakia because it wasn't that far away. But when the doors opened, we realized that we were not in Czechoslovakia, but rather in Auschwitz. We, there were uh, Germans with dogs shouting. There was uh, a lot of noise, a lot of smoke in the air, terrible smell. 
and uh, the sky, uh, the wind, the night sky was illuminated by all kinds of fires. Uh, we were told to get off from uh, the uh, boxcars, put into uh, groups, marched into a barrack, and told to strip, take off all our clothes. Then we were taken into the uh, ba- another barrack. On top of it said sauna, which means in German means a bath or showers. And we were all naked, pushed into this room. Doors were shut. And, of course, for the time being, when we looked up and saw the shower heads, we did not really know whether we were going to be showered by water or whether we were going to be exterminated by Cyclone B. Because at that point, we already knew that Auschwitz was an extermination camp. So there was a panicky moment there. And when the shower heads all of a sudden sprouted with water, it was an incredible feeling because we felt that we had now gained another day of life. After the showers, we were taking it through to another barrack and given clothes of striped outfits and uh, wooden clogs. And which meant that none of the clothes that we had deposited prior to the showers were with us anymore. By the way, before we got into the showers, we had to go through uh, groups of women who then shaved our heads. uh, If you were pleasant to them, then they only cut bits and pieces of your hair. If they didn't like you, they shaved your whole head. So now we were shaved or washed in striped pajamas and uh, clogs, and we were taken out. Now, now this is, we're talking about middle of October, and Poland is very cold, you know? It's winter in Poland, and we're taken into barracks, into three barracks, 100 people in, 100 in each barrack. We are given uh, a berth. And there are five of us to each berth, so we are lying, uh, you know, head to foot, foot to head, that way. So if you have to turn, everybody turns. And we live like this for uh, several uh, weeks. Every morning we are counted on the, what they call the appell plots. And we stand there for a couple hours, and it's very cold. We stand in in groups of five, so they can count us that way. And so in order to keep a little warmer, the person who is in front and the person who is at the very back switch positions with people who are in the middle, so we keep warmer that way, you know. So this goes on for for a while. We do jobs by... uh, shoveling snow or going on KP duty to cut potatoes, stuff like that. And then one day um, they came into the barrack and asked for uh, 30 women to come on KP duty, and my mother volunteered. I'm always with my mother. We still don't know what happened to all the men, you know. We have no idea. But... um, My mother volunteered because she thought if she could peel some potatoes, she could maybe get a few skins extra, hide them, and bring them because we were quite hungry at that point. 
And so she goes with the 30 women on KP duty. And it just so happens that at that particular day, uh, they come to the barracks and they take this particular barrack for selection. Now, the selection meant that you strip completely and uh, were in a long line of women, completely naked, and you pass by Dr. Mengele, who then has a pencil in his hand, and uh, the pencil then, he looks at you, and the pencil then points to either left or right. Uh, if it points to the left, you are not so good, but if it points to the right, you have another day of life. So uh, the first time that I go past him, uh, you know, I'm underdeveloped, but my body is clean, I'm skinny, uh, but as I said before, as tall as I've always been. Uh, so uh, I look okay, but he doesn't think so. So he puts me to the side of no good uh, with the older people and some of the other younger people. Uh, after the line goes through, he has a change of heart and beckons, the pencil beckons us to form another line. And I don't know what happened. Truly, I don't. But it must have been a form of a survival instinct because when I've reach him again. I said three words to him in German. I said, lassen Sie mich, which means let me go. He looks at me and pushes the pencil to the right. I pick up my clothes as quickly as I can and run out hysterically crying because Mengele has just given me a reprieve on life. Uh, and that was my experience with Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz. Uh, but uh, I would say another f four weeks after that, maybe three and a half weeks, the barrack, uh, we are led out of the barracks and we are told that we're going to be tattooed. We hadn't been tattooed up to that point. So at this point, we all feel that uh, we are now going to be permanently in Birkenau or Auschwitz and because we're going to be tattooed. But at a point in our march, uh, we are transported to another area. We're told to climb into different boxcars. And who is there but Asker Schindler, who had come by himself to rescue his women by bringing uh, bribes for the commandant. I'm sure that's what the commandant of Auschwitz wanted and waited for him to come. So it was Oskar Schindler who saved his women. About two days on the train. No, we're talking about now end of November. It's very cold. Uh, by the end, uh, we were about two days uh, the train finally arrives in Brunitz. The doors open, and there, for the first time, we see the men behind the barbed wires because we had no idea that they made it, but they are there. But they don't recognize us because we look so different in our striped pajamas and uh, shaved heads and uh, emaciated, etc. But uh, we're just there, and we know now that Schindler is going to protect us. 
because that's what he promises us. Damo, we might end it there on this episode with Selena Biniaz, but the conversation will continue on the next episode. Thank you so much, as always, great man, for your participation and enthusiasm to go to such a deep level because I think we both agree this is a it's a challenging topic to talk about absolutely yeah huge very moving um, and incredibly inspiring so far I'm so looking forward to sharing the next part of it with everybody all of our listeners because I haven't stopped thinking about this since we've been recording it it's just amazing and interestingly, on the next episode of 100 Not Out, when you do hear um, part two of this interview, a couple of things come up. Firstly, I think Selena is, um, I think, pleasantly surprised at the depth of our research and questions. And I, I would imagine because she's been interviewed so many times, the, the, the conversation becomes even more engrossing um, you did a in the job. second half. You did a great job. Oh, I think, well, I thank you, but I think we both did. Um, and, and, what also is incredibly powerful in this, uh, the second part of this interview is we will be playing a full recording, which has never been recorded before. We will be playing um, the complete works of Selena Biniaz, the poems that she wrote after the 70th anniversary of the liberation, which was um, in Auschwitz on January 27, 2015. Now, this, these poems have never been recorded in audio or video format. And so uh, the poem that you've heard at the beginning of this episode has never been, uh, I suppose, heard publicly on, in a recorded fashion. Mm. She's done it in, in presentations and the rest. Um, you'll be hearing um, the, the, the full range. I think there's about seven or eight um, poems that we will play for you at the end of, the, uh, of next week's episode as well. So make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already Click on your podcast. Uh, make sure you subscribe so you're notified of this. If you um, aren't on the Wellness Couch email list, go to thewellnesscouch.com and you will get a notification, a weekly email of all of the podcasts that come out on the network. And naturally enough, uh, next week's episode is one that you definitely do not want to miss. Damo, um, thanks again. For more info on Damo, head over to damienchristoff.com. For myself, go to marcuspierce.com.au. Um, and again, check out thewellnesscouch.com where you can uh, view the entire range of wellness podcasts available, including more of Damo on the number one show, The Wellness Guys, myself at Your Exceptional Life. And as always, until next week, continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.